today on Ag News Daily. What does this mean for agriculture back in the state, for economic growth, for workers, for expansion uh, by these different ag interests or companies or corporations or you name it? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Madison Honkamp here, and I am joined with Delaney Howell. And Delaney, did you see that the World Pork Expo has been canceled? I did, Madison. It's crazy to think that this event is getting canceled for uh, that June time frame. It's an event that's a big deal to the pork industry that's held every year at the Iowa State Fairgrounds. But they're saying because of African swine fever, it's a real threat. And it's it's serious. It's a real threat. They're concerned about the disease spreading here to America because, of course, they get a lot of visitors from overseas. And yeah, crazy that that is already being canceled so far. I mean, I guess it's a couple months away still, but still pretty far in advance. I know. And, you know, they really kind of wanted to hit that it is just kind of an abundance of caution. They don't mm-hmm. want to bring the African swine fever to the U.S. And, you know, they have about 20,000 visitors in those three days that uh, World Pork Expo happens, basically. Right. And a majority of the exhibitors and visitors are from those regions that are affected by mm-hmm. African fever. Yeah, and we um, talked about it yesterday on the podcast how we've seen some new outbreaks happen in Vietnam. We already had cases, of course, reported there, but some more cases. We also saw the first confirmation of African swine fever in the actual country of, or excuse me, the actual continent of Africa. South Africa confirmed an outbreak of African swine fever on a farm in Northwest Province, according to the World Organization for Animal Health on Wednesday. The outbreak was a small one. It killed 32 out of a herd of 36 pigs. And then all the remaining pigs on that farm were slaughtered. But like I said, this is the first time we've seen this disease spread now out of Asia. We've seen, I think, a, maybe an unconfirmed case in Europe. Now we're seeing it hit Africa. So I think, you know, maybe it was a good idea. They decided to go ahead and cancel World Pork Expo with more and more cases coming to light. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, hopefully they can kind of contain that in mm-hmm. Africa. And, um, well, and even I was reading the a report today. This is going back to China, but, you know, they lead... Um, they globally lead for with pork consumption and production and production is actually supposed to go down about 9%. It's kind of hitting an all time low. And this year it's projected um, final pig crop is how they kind of worded it mm-hmm. is only supposed to reach about or is supposed to decline 134 million. Yeah. And that's, equal to the entire U.S. pig crop. And I, yeah. that was a huge shock to me, I think. Yeah. And I, um, I saw a similar article that quoted the same number of losing 134 million head in China, which will put their crop, their pig crop in China to fall to a 17 year low, which of course, pork is the number one protein source. We talk about it a lot, but it is the number one protein source for folks in China. Last year, they consumed 49% consumption or 55.4 million tons. By comparison, the USA only consumes 9.75 million tons. So huge difference there. Yeah, it's 
it's crazy how much this has affected us because I feel when this all was starting, I think everyone was like, oh, you know, we'll contain it. It'll be mm-hmm. gone. But here we are, you know, how, how many months yeah. later yeah. it's spreading and getting right. I mean, the one year mark, I think would be either end of July or beginning of August. So still a little ways away from that one year mark, but really there's nothing you can do to stop the disease. We know there's no vaccination for it. So it's all, I guess, man, men or men or women are the only ones really that can stop the spread from transportation and whatnot. So yeah, crazy stuff. Exactly. And let's hope that we figure it out soon. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Madison, what else is jumping out at you today in the world of agricultural news? You know, there are a couple of things that really kind of caught my eye today. You know, one being the disaster aid talks, mm-hmm. and obviously we're talking about this a lot. Um, but a huge thing that kind of they kind of um, pointed out today in this article, um, you know, they're really pushing for aid to come to the Midwest, um, especially after the flooding and everything. But it's obviously taking a lot longer and a lot of um, kind of uh, lawmakers are saying, you know, we don't have the aid for the southern crops um, that were hit by last year's hurricanes. And um, they're kind of relying on the crop insurance and farm bill disaster programs to help us here in the Midwest. And, you know, we have talked about how that doesn't help all of that that grain that was ruined, that was in storage. Um, but I, I think we're kind of a ways off on a decision. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And, and part of the reason for that decision being pushed off is of course the Senate is heading into and lawmakers are heading into their two week Easter recess here at the end of the week. So it seems like they're trying to kind of push a lot of stuff through just a little bit more news on that disaster aid package that I also had to add to that, Madison, is, of course, we've got, you know, another bomb cyclone that could potentially affect a lot of the Midwest again. And that latest delay is um, starting here, you know, as early as maybe Wednesday night in some parts of the plains, um, bringing uh, snow, heavy rain, snow, wind across all of that area again. That's AccuWeather that's reported that today. We did see some more disaster aid discussion going on. Um, and it looks like now Purdue, Secretary Purdue was really pushing the folks in Congress to add another amendment here on this disaster aid package to help with farmers that did have stored grain that was affected. He said, you know, a very, very small number of farmers purchased private insurance to cover corn or soybeans that were in storage. So we really need to work on figuring out how we can include this in the, in the uh, relief bill, this aid bill. He said, the USDA and myself, I'm more than happy to help with, you know, the legislation or the wordage on that, the verbiage. We would love to help in the language to make sure that there's some flexibility there. But yeah, like you said, it's going to be still a really long and drawn out process. And even more so than that, I'm a little frustrated by this, but House Agriculture Chairman Colin Peterson said on Tuesday to reporters that 
the Midwest doesn't need billions in disaster aid like farmers in the southern states do, which to some extent I would agree with that. He said, you know, folks in Nebraska and Iowa were covered by crop insurance or are eligible for farm bill disaster programs already, like the livestock indemnity program. But he said that's not the case for southern crops like pecan trees and peaches hit by last year's hurricanes. So I'm a little frustrated that he thinks that, you know, the folks in the Midwest need the money less because I think that's definitely not the case. But definitely those folks in the South have been waiting for so long to get some of this money that they've been waiting a year, if not two years, to see something happen in Congress. Exactly. And I saw that kind of same thing, um, that quote by Peterson. And yeah, we... You know, the Midwest does need that aid because maybe I and I do understand that the South has been waiting you know, for so long. Um, but they I think they just kind of need to find a way to be able to split mm-hmm. the aid almost. And because there it's billions of dollars in disaster in, you know, product lost in both regions. So right. absolutely. Yeah. So our thoughts and prayers continue to go out to those folks especially for those people that could be hit again tonight, tomorrow, Friday, into the weekend with more inclement weather. Yes, exactly. And I even think South Dakota is already getting a lot oh, of... Oh, could be. Yep, they yeah. might have already gotten that, that yeah. cyclone to start again. Mm-hmm. I think it was maybe last night or two nights ago. Okay. I saw something on Twitter. Yep, definitely could be the case. Mm-hmm. Well, in other news, Madison, for today, we're seeing a little bit of news here coming out of China related to U.S. distillers' grain. China is reviewing anti-dumping tariffs on U.S. distillers' grain after the WTO essentially prompted them, it sounds like, in my opinion. Um, The document dated April 8th and issued to member companies and reviewed by Reuters, which is where this article comes from today, said the U.S. Grains Council has asked the Commerce Ministry in China to determine their anti-dumping and anti-subsidy tariffs on American DDGs, um, encouraging them to review those and see if if they can maybe lift some tariffs there. Uh, Tariffs were implemented by China on DDGs in 2016, and of course imports fell sharply after that. In 2016, China bought 3 million tons of DDGs, mainly from the United States, but the imports last year, or excuse me, the year before, the imports from 2015 compared to 2016 were down 55%. So the uh, industry request comes here amid these trade talks with Beijing and Washington. So trying to get that rolled into really the grand scheme plan here of negotiations And so they've asked China to review that as well. Yeah, and I definitely, I saw kind of an article or more of just a quote from Secretary Perdue, you know, that these, the the conversations with the tariffs and trade have been going pretty positive, but it's never over till it's over with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I definitely see that, especially, you know, with, just the trade talks that have been going on for that were supposed to end in March and now they're still going in. Yeah. That's very true. Absolutely. I mean, it's a slow process for the USMCA agreement, a slow process for Chinese agreements and whatnot. So keep pushing forward, but we need, we need a win in agriculture. It feels like. Yes, exactly. 
And I think that this is not going to be a win for agriculture. But Madison, I've got to bring this up for folks, too, as we continue to look at Brazil and Argentina pushing ahead into the future here to become dominating players in the grains markets. Brazil's next soybean harvest, of course, won't start until around the beginning of next year, but it's going to be a big one. According to the latest analysis by USDA's Foreign Agricultural Services, although Brazilians won't be planting that much more in acreage, only about a 1% increase, the USDA is saying because of better growing weather and yields and technology, Brazil is expected to push production up by another 9% in soybeans to a record 124 million metric tons of soybeans for the 2019-2020 year. They said um, that Brazilian farmers are holding back on expanding acreage because they're also watching what's going on right now with China, African swine fever, etc. Watching the demand there in China to see really if it will hold. But they've got the possibility to increase acreage a lot more than 1%. And I think that unfortunately creates a little more devastation for the soybean industry, which we, of course, saw the WASI report come out the other day. It was a little more friendly than what the trade was expecting, but we're still nearing that 1 billion bushel carryout in the U.S. And globally, we've got a lot of soybeans. And this is just going to add to that US, or to the world stockpile here with Brazil increasing their production. Yes, definitely. And it's kind of daunting to even think about that, you mm-hmm. know, because, you know, how many how much soybeans we have here just kind of saved up from past production. And then, you know, what will be planted and to see Brazil adding that many acres is absolutely easy, really. Yeah. So, yeah, not such not such great news for today. But uh, that's really all the news I had. Madison, you do you have anything else that our listeners should be aware of? I just have this one last thing that I thought was really interesting. More of the kind of political science geek in me, I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, President Trump is signing an executive order to prevent states from blocking pipelines and energy infrastructure. Hmm. So um, obviously, so technically executive orders cannot override state laws um, according to the constitution, but he's using more of the authority under the clean water act. And he is hmm. signing this today in Texas, um, but under section 401 of the clean water act, companies have to kind of get permission from the states before they can build Uh, federally approved infrastructure like pipelines um, within the borders and these states can say yes or no depending on how they think it will affect the water quality Um, and a lot of states like New York and Washington have denied a lot of these kind of developments to happen Um, and you know they did point out that these are democrat controlled states um But basically, this executive order is going out to the EPA to kind of review the Section 401 to states and kind of make them be more consistent with their laws and with how how those decisions are made, basically. Okay, interesting. President Trump's been issuing a lot of executive orders lately. Yeah, he definitely has been. But again, I I really like to kind of talk about the Constitution and everything, but executive orders can't override state laws. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting that he's still kind of trying yeah. to get the EPA 
to convince states to do something else. That is interesting. All right. Well, Madison, that looks like it does it for our news for today. What do you say? Should we uh, check out the commodity markets? Let's do it, Delaney. All right. And of course, our commodity markets are brought to you by our partners at the Zayner Group, Ted Seifert, Brian Grossman, lots of other great folks over there. You can give them a call today at 312-277-0050. And don't forget to tell them that you heard it on Ag News Daily. Looking across the grains for today, a little bit of strength in corn and soybeans weakness in the wheat pits. Starting out here with the May corn contract up a penny and three quarters at 361 and three quarters, while the December up a penny and a half to close at 390 and three quarters. Soybeans, a little bit more strength than usual for today. The May contract up three and a quarter cent at 902, even the November up two and three quarters cent at 934 and a half. In the wheat pits, the May contract lost a penny and a half on the day at 4.58 even, while the July down two and a half cents at 4.61 and a half. Hopping over into the livestock markets, quite a bit of red on the screen for the live cattle market, but strength in the lean hog markets. The April live cattle contract closed down two cents at 125.87 and a half, while the June closed down 40 cents to end at 119.95. In the feeder cattle pits, the April contract cut 97 and a half cents on the day to close at 145.17 and a half, while the May cutting 95 cents to end at 149.22 and a half. As I mentioned here, quite a bit of strength in the lean hogs. I'm going to go all the way out here today to the June contract. The April, first of all, put on 37.5 cents at 78.90. Still a lot of discrepancy. It's going to be interesting to see here if the May contract comes down to meet April or what we see happen as we near the end of April expiration. The May contract closed up 52.5 cents at 86.97.5 and the June up $1.30 to close at 96.45 and rounding out our markets with the dairy class 3 milk futures. We've got the April contract up 2 cents on the day at 15.97, the May up 6 cents at 15.91. Now as we continue talking about trade here on the podcast, we've got a really interesting interview coming today from a gentleman who works for Pass USMCA Coalition, which is essentially a group that's working on many fronts, to get USMCA solidified for the United States and more specifically, U.S. agriculture. We are continuing our look at the international world, and one of the things that is uh, certainly grabbing headlines over the past several years is the USMCA, NAFTA 2.0, as uh, we've called it a few times on the podcast. We're joined today by Rick Dearborn, the executive director of a group called PASS, USMCA. Rick, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, it's great to be with you all today. Thanks so much. Well, bring us up to speed. USMCA, of course, has been signed by uh, by both President Trump and the presidents of Mexico and Canada. When does it go into effect? Well, so the executives all reached the deal, and they've been working on that for some time. Um, it goes into effect after each legislative body in those respective countries uh, pass what's called implementing legislation. So that's the process that everybody's getting prepared for right now. Um, Some of the timelines uh, to look out for, uh, and there's no magic to this. I mean, some of this can change by uh, a couple of weeks. It's all dependent upon the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. And then, of course, the two legislative bodies up in Canada and Mexico, which are going to be trying to do the same thing this spring and early summer. Um, But a lot of folks are now talking about waiting on wanting to see what happens with the ITC report. That's supposed to come out somewhere between April 15th and 19th, maybe on the latter end. Um, 
that report has come out on trade deals in, in years past. It basically just talks about the impact of tariffs. Um, usually those reports are very underwhelming, and at the end of the day, you're not going to see a lot of House members and senators on the day of the final vote turn to their staff and say, give me that ITC report. I want to read every page before I vote. Uh, it's just a mile marker. That thing kind of kicks off the process, uh, and the speaker working with uh, the president's team, especially with Bob Lighthizer at USTR uh, and McConnell in the Senate, uh, we'll all start talking then about what's called the SAA, which is the Statement of Administration Action. Uh, and that's the actual draft that's submitted by the executive branch to Congress so they can get to work on implementing the trade deal. Rick, I've got kind of a maybe a silly question here, but past the USMCA is a whole organization revolving around efforts to get this trade agreement passed. So I guess, first of all, um, what are some of the efforts that you guys are doing to help get USMCA passed? And then secondly, does this organization dissolve once we have a trade deal in place or officially implemented in place? Right. Um, our whole focus is, is just lasered in on the swift passage of the USMCA trade deal. Again, we're a diverse group of trade associations, businesses, advocacy groups. We have a lot of ag interests as part of our, part of our team. Um, and our whole, our whole focus right now is to try to move the ball forward on USMCA. The first thing we're doing is an educational effort. You have to remember that I can probably, we can all probably count on both of our hands the number of people that were here 25 some odd years ago in 93 mm-hmm. when NAFTA was passed. So it's an outdated deal. It had several flaws in it to begin with. And this USMCA really kind of fixes all of that. So the biggest issue is educating members. you got over 100 new faces in Congress, both Republican and Democrat on the House side. So a lot of these folks for the first time have, are going to have to deal with trade and haven't done that before. So really good information, good facts and figures. What does this mean for agriculture back in their state, for economic growth, for workers, for expansion uh, by these different ag interests or companies or corporations or you name it? So um, we're trying to get as much information as we can to all of these members, and that's the effort that we're engaged in right now. And we want them asking a lot of really, really, you know, important questions, tough questions. Uh, they deserve to get good, hard facts and figures so they can make an educated decision when they go to the floor of their respective chambers to vote. Uh, as far as what happens to us after, um, we think that USMCA is really kind of the template for the rest of the trade deals that will come down the pike, including China, Japan, uh, the, the, the British, yeah. and maybe even the EU. So um, we see ourselves constituted for this, probably reconstitute for uh, the next trade deal that comes after that. Um, So my guess is you'll see this coalition come back. But our main focus is to get USMCA passed right now. Now, you mentioned some of the hard questions that are being asked by legislators, and we have seen some conversations here over the past two weeks, 10 days. Labor leaders and Democrats in particular are concerned that some of the enforcement mechanisms for the labor policies in USMCA aren't going to be passed by, in particular, Mexico. What's your take on that? Is this is this generally something that uh, we need to be concerned about uh, when it comes to the passage? Well, look, I, I think one of the best things to do is to look what's actually in the deal. I mean, it improves the labor provisions quite a bit. I mean, the deal really requires the U.S. and Canada and Mexico adopt and enforce labor laws set by the International Labor, labor Organization. Uh, there weren't any formal labor, labor requirements under NAFTA. So, you know, under a USMCA, by 2023, you see 40 to 45 percent of the entire automotive parts industry has to be made by workers who earn at least $16 per hour, which I think is favorable to labor. Um, 
these are issues that the administration is going to be working on with members of Congress, House and Senate. Uh, I know Bob Lighthizer. Uh, Lighthizer is not going to cut a deal and then not enforce his deal. And I also know the president. Um, and boy, if there's anybody that wants to make sure that we enforce deals that we we wind up making, it's going to be those two. So I feel very confident that as they work with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, but especially with with Democrats that might be concerned about labor issues, uh, that I think they're they're going to be able to kind of step up and explain how they do plan to not only enforce, but why this is a really good deal for labor. And then I guess the other question that's kind of floating around in our minds, at least now we saw President Trump said, okay, we're going to push off closing the border to Mexico for another year into the future. This was kind of his warning statement, I think is what he maybe called it. How does that affect trade agreements like the USMCA agreement if we were to close our borders to Mexico? Well, look, maybe I see it a little bit different. Some of the issues right now with Mexico, uh, I, I think a lot of people look at that and seem to think that that might be sending a message to them. Uh, there are concerns over immigration that are completely separate from this. Um, I think the Mexican government knows that we have concerns about making sure that they have strong enforcement of labor standards that we've agreed to. So, you know, in many ways, this is the president putting them on notice. Um, and, and let's let's remember, I mean, trade trade agreements in the past had been in many ways exercises in trying to make gains on some ephemeral foreign policy when somewhere across the globe that met basically um, giving up on a lot of our industries. And that's not the focus of this administration. And I think you see it in this deal, uh, which was designed to bring manufacturing back, to boost uh, market access uh, for agriculture, to provide copyright protections, uh, for the first time to focus on the digital economy that didn't exist under NAFTA 25 years ago, uh, for the first time have a, have a chapter on small business. So I mean, the upgrades to this deal are really significant. So I think with Mexico, it's just maybe a way of saying, look, we really want you guys to play ball, and we're serious about it. Now, I want to get into the weeds just a little bit. I know that two of your members are the National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council. We've seen dairy play a, a key role, at least in the president's public statements about NAFTA and about USMCA. As you look at this deal and as, as you consider these two members of your coalition, how is USMCA going to benefit American dairy farmers? Well, uh, especially with the Canadians, I think it just provides greater access uh, for our dairy farmers uh, with our neighbors to the north. And under the deal, uh, it, it sets forth the conditions that allow for, um, I think, greater exports of our dairy into uh, Canada. Uh, not, not necessarily the same with Mexico, but the Canadian imbalance is the one that we had. So for our dairy farmers, this is really a big, big deal for them. Um, and I think it actually, you know, it, it, it sets up, you know, different uh, quotas and targets and limits that are higher than they were prior to and under NAFTA. Rick, I guess from a legislative standpoint, I want to turn back to that for just a second here because I've still got sure. a couple of questions. So we've seen, obviously, enforcement being one of the issues holding up the passage of of USMCA agreement. But what about when people say that Congress needs to ratify the agreement? What What are they referring to? What does Congress have to actually do for the ratification process? So you can um, you can sign an agreement as an executive, uh, but when you sign an agreement like our president did with the leaders of Mexico and Canada, um, those agreements have impacts on statutory law in all three countries. 
So in early January, Bob Lighthizer had to send a letter up that showed, I think it was a nine page letter that listed all the different statutes and law that might be everything from the farm bill uh, to economic bills and tax related items that have passed over time that have to be adjusted to make sure that what we've agreed to matches what our laws actually say and how they're enforced. So it's like sending the roadmap to Congress and saying, look, we've made this agreement, but under our current laws, this agreement can't move forward unless we make these series of changes. So that's what the implementing legislation is. It comes forward and it makes those adjustments in all different types of laws. And I mean, it's, it's gonna be a multitude of them that would have addressed a lot of these different sectors and conditions upon those sectors. Uh, and these changes then are reflected in the implementing legislation put before the Congress, and then they vote on that. Once voted on, those changes are made, and those changes then codify the agreement that the three leaders had made originally. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I was going to ask you then, so we've <laughs> heard these conversations getting started in the U.S. The what? What is your take on implementing legislation actually making it through? What's mm-hmm. your rough timeline? Is it going to be a year or two years, or are there any requirements set forth by the signing? Well, so the, the implementing legislation, there's a time clock that starts. Uh, I mentioned this a little earlier. The ITC report comes out. And then there's a statement of administration, a statement of administration action. That's, that's when the executive turns to the legislative branch and says, okay, here's, here's the actual language that we've drafted that we would like you to at least start with to consider. Uh, and there may be some modifications made to it by the House and the Senate, which is what becomes the implementing legislation. All of that under the trade rules that are set forth, the way that we have, we make these agreements and the way that we enforce them and actually agree to them starts a clock. Um, and th- some of these clocks are 90 days, 120 days, but you have a certain amount of time once, once that uh, statement of administration action is provided, you have a certain amount of time for Congress to consider the implementing language and then pass a bill. Um, so, once they receive that, they will start working on that through committee. So the Finance Committee in the Senate and the Ways and Means Committee in the House uh, will take that language, uh, make whatever changes they feel necessary. They'll take them to both both chambers of the House and the Senate floor. Um, there are probably there could be amendments in the House and the Senate in committee. There could be amendments in the House and the Senate on the floor. They then vote on that, reconcile the differences, and have a final vote on implementing language. And all of that is hopeful, I think. The administration has telegraphed this, but they'd love to see it done, um, you know, before, I think they were, were hoping before the July 4th break or at least by the August break. So that's kind of the timeline. All right. Well, we're making progress then. What's your take on the legislative situations, both in Mexico and in Canada? Well, um, the, the Canadians, I think, are trying to get it done before June, some date in June. I think that's when they're, their legislative body uh, adjourns. And I think that the Mexican government is actually, uh, if I understand right, and someone's going to have to double check me, but I think I think that they're probably underway or in the middle of, of trying to figure out how to move that legislation. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm so focused on our on our uh, congressional efforts. That, uh, I just, you know, I hope and pray that we get the same type of support going on in Mexico and Canada. And I think that we do. Absolutely. So, Rick, I've got kind of a wrap up question for you here. 
we've got obviously a lot of producers that listen to the podcast, and and I think there is some disconnect sometimes between what happens in Washington D.C. and what's happening maybe on the farm, thinking, oh, those things happening in Washington don't really matter to me or don't affect me, or they just lose yeah. that that connection there. In your opinion, what's maybe the not silver bullet, but what's the thing that producers need to know about getting USMCA agreement passed? Look, if I was in agriculture, the best part is, is that even though NAFTA may have phased out a lot of, if not most of the agriculture tariffs with Mexico and with Canada, it excluded the ones on dairy and poultry and eggs and sugar. Uh, so we're enhancing access, especially in the Canadian market for U.S. dairy, poultry and egg products. For the first time ever, we're also putting wheat on a level playing field. So the wheat that we export is going to be on the same level playing field as the wheat that comes in. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The bottom line is, is that we're trying to uh, create greater market, market access uh, with our neighbors, both to the north and to the south of us. Uh, and this would provide, I think, a greater options and, 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 and greater opportunities for, for all, of, all of agriculture across the board uh, to get more product. Uh, uh, you know, out the door and across the borders um, and hopefully not only making a profit, but expanding their operations. So, I mean, this is going to be, this is going to mean good business uh, for the ag community across the board. Uh, I, I think it's just a, it's a win-win for agriculture. And I would just encourage all your listeners to, and I mean it, they, they, they need to call up their congressman. They need to call up their Senator. They need to get real savvy on the, on the items that are in this deal that really impact them. And, and tell a personal story. Just say, look, if I had greater access to the dairy market in Canada, if I were able to sell my wheat uh, at the same price as Canadians, this is what it means for me, and this is what it means for my community. Because as you guys well know, I mean, one farmer supports a whole myriad of jobs. There's a whole support system and in industry, uh, folks in town, farm equipment, uh, you know, chemicals, fertilizer. I mean, everything that goes with it is impacted. So. Um, this is a chance for them to kind of stand up and, and, and encourage Congress to support an agreement that will actually help their livelihood. Absolutely, Rick. If we've got listeners who want to get involved somehow, they want to, to bone up on some of the details in this uh, the USMCA treaty, where can they go? What are some resources you'd recommend? Well, they can go to our website, which is passusmca.org. Um, there's going to be facts and figures that are listed there. Uh, the American Farm Bureau, I think, has really good information for them. Um, a lot of the different commodity groups that are that are uh, part of our organization and, and among and then others uh, will also have good information. So the National Cotton Council would be a, a great place to look. The National Chicken Council is is part of it. You've already mentioned our dairy partners. So if you're a member of an association as an, as as a as a farmer. Um, and you check that site, I guarantee you there's going to be a whole section dedicated to, pass, uh, to, to passing uh, this trade deal and what it means for your particular row crop or, or product in, uh, within the industry. Fantastic. Rick Dearborn, the executive director of the PASS USMCA Coalition. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Hey, it was great to be with you guys. All right. Well, again, Rick was a great interview there. Learned a lot of stuff about the process of getting some of these trade deals, you know, through. And, and I think it really does seem like if we can just get this one trade agreement finished up, it'll be a bright spot and give some folks something to look forward to here. Definitely. I think we've been hearing about all of even just even all of these trade talks been going on. It seems like forever. It and does. I think 
I think once at least one is done, then maybe we'll be a little bit more positive. Yes, absolutely. I know it would lift my spirits. I'm sure it would lift many farmers as well. Folks, if, yes. there are, uh, if there are topics that you feel like we should be covering here on the podcast, feel free to reach out to us on our website, globalagnetwork.com. You can also reach us on Facebook and on Twitter at Ag News Daily. We like hearing from you. We like getting your input on topics we should be covering or interviews or guests we should be having on the podcast. So feel free to shoot us your opinions. Madison, with that, shall we let the people go? Let's let them go.